But this morning, I want to do something really different. I felt particularly impressed to do this today. We always see life, whether we intend to or not, you see life from your perspective. All your experiences, be they physical, emotional, relational, come to bear on how you perceive life, your perspective, your, your process, how you walk through this, how you see it, how you view it. I wondered earlier this week, how, how does God see us? What perspective does God have on us? So I thought I'd craft a message as if God was sort of talking to us. And I'm not saying I'm God by no means, you know that. But if God were going to speak to us and he were going to talk to us today, rather than us just talking about his word and about him, but if God was going to say, hey, here's how I see you, I wonder what he would say. Well, let's get into it and see. Number one. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. First thing he'd tell us, I think, is, hey, look, I know the plans. There's a set of plans. I'm the architect. I'm the builder. And there's a set of plans. And I have them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, give you hope, give you a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'm going to tell you why a lot of Christians over time lose their intimacy with God. They start losing pieces of their heart to other interests. It's just the truth. Pieces of our heart get wounded through interaction with other people and they never recover listen it is god's will for you to be healed on the inside because if there's a part of your heart that is consumed with a wound and a scab how are you ever going to give all of your heart and seek god with all of your heart if part of it is wounded and won't heal how are you going to how are you going to ever seek god with all your heart if part of your heart is given over to a life controlling habit that you can't break You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's not just about faults. That's about what we do emotionally, mentally, spiritually. God is saying to us today, I have plans for you and they are good. Why are you freaked out? I think that's what God would say to us. I've got plans for you and they're good. Why are you freaked out? We get freaked out so easily. How many of you ever had a really, really bad nightmare and it felt real and you woke up in a, in a frantic state? That happened to me last week. I'm going to tell you about, welcome to my nightmare. I'm going to tell you about my nightmare. <clears throat> I was riding down the road and, and I had the strangest dreams. I really do. I mean, you're, you're looking at a guy who dreamed he was a stuffed monkey <laughs> floating through space and I could feel myself in the stuffed monkey's body. And I, I was floating through space, and I couldn't move anything but my eyes. So here I am with little arms, and I'm floating through space, and all I can do is move my eyes like this. Can't move my head. I got this weird smile, big ears, and I'm just floating. And this dream went on for hours, forever. They say dreams only last for a second, not this one. I just floated and floated and floated and floated. So I have this one other characteristic about my dreams that's strange. I find that a lot of times... Strangers 
invade my dreams. People I've never met, don't know, have no idea who they are. They just appear in my dreams. Anybody else have that? Uh, there's a few of you out there. Yeah. Some of you are, are thinking, I'm not the only one. You're not. It's good. So I'm driving down the road in this 1957 blue Chevrolet, which would never happen because it's a Chevrolet. Anyway, I'm driving down the road. And there's a guy sitting in the seat that I don't know. And I don't really think I like him all that much. Probably the car salesman. Anyway, I'm driving down the road, and all of a sudden, I see these streaks in the sky. And I think, what in the world is going on? And then these streaks start dropping. And then these explosions start happening. And then the sky is filled. There are thousands of missiles just raining down all around us. And there's just no escape. And they're coming in my direction. And I'm just screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I woke up going. It's funny how we, I don't, you know, nobody ever speaks English in their sleep. Pastor Donna goes. When I hear her doing that, I go, pudding pie, it's all right, wake up. Okay, she's all right. She says she's praying in the spirit, but she's just mumbling stuff like we all do. All right. So God is saying, I've got plans for you. Hey, leave these things up on the, on the screen and don't go back to the all-in thing because I'm going to be referring to them. I've got plans for you and they are good. Why are you freaked out? What is it that we're worried about? Do we trust God or not? Do we believe Jeremiah 29 or not? Do we really believe that God holds us in the hollow of his hand, that our steps are ordered by the Lord? Do we believe he knows the, ha the hairs on our head and he has them all numbered? Do we really believe this verse of scripture, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. I want to challenge you today to just decide in this very moment that you're going to accept Jeremiah 29, 13 and 11 through 13 as fact in your life, a promise of God that he's got you, he's got a plan, it's good, and you're involved in it. Just accept that. Stop being freaked out. Worry is nothing more than doubting God's plan. That's all it is. I could come up with a real clever, tweetable one-liner there. But sometimes we just need to realize, oh. sometimes we just need to realize, when I'm worrying, it means I'm not trusting God with the plan that he said he has for me. But, the, but, but, but things change. Change is a natural part of life. Change is something we've got to get used to because it's never going to stop. There's either less of you or more of you than there was yesterday, today. Think about that. Wow. There's either less of me or more of me than there was yesterday. That's right. What else might God say to us? In order to see these plans realized, you have to be in my will. So stop being distracted. In order to see God's plans realized, you've got to be in God's will. If we were all in a survival situation and we had made it to the mountains of Tennessee or, or Kentucky or North Carolina, somewhere up in the, in the mountains, and, and we were up, up on this hilltop because you're going to get the high ground. You know, We're up there. And, 
we sit down our first day after we've all gotten together. Everybody's got their campsite. Everybody's got their little garden, and everybody's doing their thing. And we, and we all decide, okay, we need to sit down and develop a plan for a defense perimeter of our camp in case we get attacked by hooligans. So we all sit down, and we develop this plan. What's that plan going to do? What good is it going to do? How effective is it going to be if none of us actually sticks to the plan and walks it out when we come under attack? For those few people today in America who might actually watch the NFL this afternoon, I will not be among them. The teams out there have a playbook. And they have all these plays. I used to play football. I was a running back. Whether I played fullback or halfback, there was always a plan. There was always a play. If the play went perfect according to the way the coach designed it, you scored a touchdown every time. But the plan didn't always work that way, and you didn't always score a touchdown on every play. That didn't mean because that play didn't work, you threw up your hands, quit, walked off the field, and forfeited the game. You huddled up, you made a new plan, and you tried again. Let me tell you something. In order to see God's, realize, God's plan realized in your life, you've got to be in God's will because God's plan goes right along with God's will, and so does God's provision. God's plan and his provision are in step with his will. You can be in your will and commit spiritual forgery and stamp God's approval on it, but if it's not God's plan... His provision won't be there. If it's not his will, his plan won't be there. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You want to find out what God's will is? Then have your mind renewed. Get out of the world so much. Do you realize how much of the world we've got in our lives? You ever stop and ask yourself, how much much worldliness is really in my life? What does God even mean when he says worldliness? What does that mean? It would be good for us to stop and ask ourselves, how much of the world is in my life? Because it's easy for us to deceive ourselves. It's easy for us to think spiritually more highly of ourselves than we should. This Chinese guy came to town. He knew a little bit about medicine. He didn't have a job, so he decided he would open up a clinic. So he opened up a clinic, put out a sign, And said, cure any illness, $20. If cannot cure, you get $100. So this lawyer who fancied himself to be the smartest guy in town decided, I'll go make a quick $100 off this Chinese dude. So he shows up the first day. The Chinese man say, what problem? The man said, the lawyer said, well, my taste buds just don't seem to work anymore. He told his nurse, three drop, bottle two. She got the bottle, went over there, three drops in the lawyer's tongue. He went, that's kerosene. He said, taste bud cure, $20. (laughs) 
lawyer went back to his office, kind of vexed him out. So he decided, he decided I, I, can st- I can still make 80 bucks. I got to go back. So he went back. This time he said, uh, doctor, I said, uh, what problem? He said, I'm losing my memory. I just, I just can't remember anything. He, he said to his assistant, he said, three drop, bottle full. She gets another bottle, comes over there, open mouth, puts three drops. He went, that's kerosene just like you gave me last time. Chinese doctor said, memory cure, $20. (laughs) He said, dead coming. So he went home and he said, I'm not going to let this little Chinese doctor outsmart me. I'm the smartest guy in town. So he went back a third time and he said, this is the last time I'm going to get my money. I can still make 60 bucks. So he goes, ah, I know what to do now. So he goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, what problem? He said, my eyesight is going. I think I'm half blind. Chinese doctor said, hmm, I have no medicine for that. Here's your $100. Man said, thank you. He said, wait, this is a 20. Chinese man said, eyesight cure, $20. (laughs) Sometimes we think we're smarter than we are. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment. When it comes to seeing your dreams realized, we have to be in God's will and stop being distracted. Now, now let's just do a little, a little honesty survey and ask ourselves what things are distracting me from being in the center of God's will. Here at Romans, Paul gives us the formula, the keys For understanding God's will, you reverse engineer this. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Do what? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's what we do. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. So if we want to know what God's will is, we just need to know what God's heart is. And the way we know what God's heart is is to draw close to him in relationship. If you and I will walk in close relationship with God, we'll never have to worry about knowing what his will is. And if we will obey God today for this step, we won't have to worry about where we're going to be 10 years from now because God's will is one step at a time and God does not have to reveal our next step in order for us to take the one that is before us now. In this idea of doing God's will and God's plans for you, you will face opposition. The third thing, you will face opposition from many areas, God would say to us. But faithfulness and focus triumph. I did not put Oscar Mayer on your forehead. In other words, I didn't make any of you weenies. I didn't make any of you fearful. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And the correct, the real, more accurate translation of sound mind is self-control. 
So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. One of the most powerful weapons you and I have in the arsenal of who we are, given to us by God, perfected by our own use of it, and given as an, as an existential special gift of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Think about that. You're going to face opposition from many areas. I I don't know how to tell you guys this, but don't be surprised when the devil fights you. Don't be surprised when people are mean. All you need to do to get exercise in antisocial behavior is just drive through Atlanta at 4 o'clock on a Friday. That's all you need to do. You will then understand negative human behavior quotients. Don't be amazed when you go to work and somebody doesn't like you. Don't be amazed when you show up and somebody starts a rumor about you. Don't be amazed when things happen that are challenging, that are difficult, that seem actually to be not just obstacles, but opposition. An obstacle is one thing, opposition is another. An obstacle is a rock in your path. Opposition is a bear in your path. We freak out at obstacles and and we completely lose our mind at, at opposition. But let me encourage you to understand that's part of life. And God already knew about the rock and the bear and the path. But if we're on God's path, then God has a plan for the rock and God has a plan for the bear and God has a plan for you. Remember, nothing ever takes God by surprise. So if we're in God's will, and we're operating according to his plan, we don't have to be afraid of anything, especially the unknown, because it's never unknown. Nothing in front of you is unknown. Let me just tell you, there's nothing in front of you 12 years from now on a Tuesday. It's not unknown. You might not know it, but God does. It's part of his plan. Second thing. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you know, I think that somebody asked Jesus a question one time and he responded by saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Now, I say this to you a lot. I want to say it one more time. The Bible's either all true or it's all a lie, Right? We either believe God's word or we don't, right? In the book of Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, there's a story I want to read very briefly. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly, often falls into the fire, into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Here's Jesus' response so tactful, so delicate, so politically correct. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus said. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Now, back in the 70s and the 80s, we had this thing called the deliverance movement that came through the churches, especially charismatic and Pentecostal churches. And these prayer generals or prayer eagles or prayer warriors. Uh, funny, I don't ever remember any group calling themselves prayer servants or prayer plebes 
or anything like that. It's always eagles or warriors or stallions or whatever. Anyway, these prayer people would find the demonized person and drag him off to a room to him, and then they'd pray for six hours to deliver the, de- the demonic spirit. That is not patterned one place in the New Testament. Not ever. Deliverance of demonic oppression, possession, or abuse is a very quick issue in the New Testament. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out. And the disciples came to Jesus, I love these two words, in private, and asked, why couldn't we do that? He replied, because you have so little faith. You just think you want Jesus to be your pastor. He didn't didn't put any chocolate sauce on this. He didn't put any meringue on this. He didn't dust any sugar on this. Why couldn't we drive it out? Well, you know, I love y'all, and I would never say anything to hurt you, but... You know, maybe you need to think about, ah, uh, he said, because you have so little faith. Why can't we have a happy marriage? Because you're so selfish. That's what Jesus would say. Hey, we're talking about from God's perspective. Why, do, why am I so negative? Because you're negative. We just think we want Jesus to be our pastor. We want somebody who talks about Jesus to be our pastor, but is a lot nicer in person. Because you have so little faith. He said, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. This is known as pouring Tabasco in the wound. If you had any appreciable faith. What Jesus is really saying, there's nothing sacrosanct about a mustard seed. We've made this whole thing about the mustard seed. What Jesus is actually doing is going. That's what he's really doing. Because you have so little faith. If you had faith this big. You could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And then he makes a statement, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, before you say amen and take a note and go, "Mm mm-hmm, good word, let me just ask you, don't, don't raise your hand, don't get up and shout on the back of a chair. Do you really believe this? Does any of us in here really truly believe that if we have faith, nothing is impossible for us? I don't know if there's a whole bunch of people in America that actually believe this passage of Scripture anymore. I hate to be negative and downer, but I wonder how many of us really do. I think we know how to talk good shop, and we've heard preachers talk good shop, and we've sung songs about good shop, and we've heard messages on it, we've seen videos on it, we've heard other people give testimony about it, we've seen missionaries come and talk about it, but it won't work unless it's in us. I'm not asking you about a good message or a song. I'm asking you if you believe that God's promises will work. That's the, that's the issue. Do we have faith of any appreciable size, of any appreciable quotient, of any appreciable dynamism? Next thing God might say is, if y'all only knew, he would say y'all because he knows we're in the South. If y'all only knew how little emotion accomplishes versus how much faith does. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I've been in this ministry thing, this pastoring thing, a long, long, long time, and I have counseled a lot of people over the years in a lot of different places. And I'm going to tell you that emotions cause about 95% of all the problems that Christians have. 
and about 95% of all the people I've ever met in the house in the kingdom of God are dominated by their emotions instead of by faith. We live by what we feel rather than living by what we know. When what we should do is we should live by what we know, not by what we feel. Now, emotions aren't sin. They're not evil. They're not wicked. God hardwired them into us. But emotions are nothing but thoughts with a little chemical juice added to them, either a hormone or a chemical or an attitude or something. But basically at their root, emotions are thoughts, and thoughts become feelings. So 2 Corinthians 10 gives us the cure for this. We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Now, a lot of times we, we have problems with other people because of communication. And again, going back to perspective, they see things one way, we see it another way, and we just don't understand, so we get all emotional about it. A little boy went to school one day, and his math teacher came and said, Johnny, if I gave you two cats and then two more cats, and then I gave you two more cats, how many cats would you have? And little Johnny said, seven. And she said, no, 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 wait a minute, listen to the problem again now. If I gave you two cats and then added to them two cats, and then added to them two more cats, how many cats would you have? Little Johnny rolled his eyes and said, seven. She said, let's try it this way. If I gave you two apples, and then added two apples, then added two more apples, how many apples would you have? He said, six. She said, son, you're frustrating me. You understand it with apples, but not with cats. And I'm going to ask you this one more time. If I gave you two cats and two cats and two cats, how many cats would you have? He said, seven. I already have a cat. <laughs> we don't sometimes understand where other people are at. Why is she responding to me this way? They're looking at it from a totally different perspective than we are. And that lack of understanding, we immediately go emotional. I was climbing up. I used to have an old deer stand. And the bottom of it was about 27 pounds. And the top of it was just this little arm climber that had no padding on it, just two pieces of metal sticking off the tree about that far. You moved the arm, most, most uncomfortable, painful thing. By the time you got up in the tree, you needed therapy, you know. <clears throat> so you, you pop the top of it up, then you pull the bottom and pop it up. Pull the top, pull, the, and, it, and it bound on the tree like this, clack. Well, one day I got about 25 feet up this tree, and when I went for the last time to pop the bottom of the stand on the tree, you, you, you hold it with your feet with these two straps. And when I pointed my toes down as much as I could to lift the stand up, it slipped off my boots. And when it hit the tree, it went plop, plack. And that started plop, plack, plop, plack. And that thing went clack, 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 like an old jack for a truck all the way down to the ground. I'm hanging on this tree by my arms, 25 feet in the air, dangling there. I'm thinking, oh my God, how does this happen to a sane person? How did this happen? God, what have I done to vex thee? So if I had gotten all emotional, all I had to do, listen, all I had to do was give away for just a moment and let my elbow get up this high. And if I'd let my elbow get up parallel to my shoulder, probably I would have never been able to do what I was about to do. 
but I kept my sanity. Somehow, God helped me to keep control of my emotions. I grabbed the, the back of the little hand thing, pulled myself close to it, wrapped my legs around the tree, and in the most awkward and spastic way you could ever imagine, I shimmied down that tree with that little device. I got to the bottom, and I was so tired, I just went home and went back to bed. <laughs> One successful hunting trip. Emotions don't do much for us. They feel good. We like to express ourselves in them. But God did not give us emotions for them to dominate the decision-making apparatus of our lives. God gave us emotions to help let us navigate our way through life with other human beings. They're part of the human experience. But they're never intended to become the dominant factors in our decision-making processes, nor are they the primary bases from which we operate relationally with other people, and especially not with God. We're going to operate with God. We operate based on five words. What does the Bible say? Christian authors have learned that if they will connect with their audience on an emotional level, the audience will be with them. But if they just connect with the audience on a level of truth and fact and biblical principle, they will lose the audience. You know what that really is? That's not insight or wisdom. That's an indictment on the body of Christ is what that is. We should be more mature than somebody to have to connect with us using clever stories and humor and dramas and all the other stuff that we, we as leaders are required nowadays to use to connect with people who are in the body of Christ. We ought to be mature enough. We thrive on truth. We as the body of Christ ought to be mature enough that we thrive on the truth. And the truth needs no emotion. It needs no addenda. It needs no accent. It needs no seasoning. The truth is beautiful all on its own. Next thing God might say to us is, hey, didn't I explain the whole Peter got out of the boat thing well enough? When it comes to faith, you know, the earlier thing that God wanted us to understand was, hey, I've got a plan for you. That was the first point. The second point is, hey, you got you to live by faith. You can't walk by feelings. You got to live by faith. Didn't I explain the whole Peter got out of the boat thing well enough? You know the story. The seas are stormy. Uh, Jesus appears walking on the water. And, and then Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you. So, I mean, you know, Peter could have said, I often wonder, why'd you pick that? Why'd Peter say that? He could have so said, Lord, if it's you, let seven ducks fly by quacking in tongues. Lord, if it's you, let a whole chorus of porpoises hop up out of the ocean and start singing the hallelujah chorus. You know, Lord, if it's you, let angels appear. No, Lord, if it's you, tell me to get out of the boat and come to you. Jesus said, come on. Till he died, Peter had a problem with his mouth. So Peter gets out of the boat, and everybody talks and focuses about the fact that Peter started sinking, and he did start sinking. But before he started sinking, he did something that the only other person on earth who, history who ever has was Jesus Christ. Peter walked on water. And I can assure you, Peter was not perfect at that point. So these people that say, when you get perfect, you'll be able to walk on water. And Peter did it, and he wasn't perfect. That doesn't mean you and I will be able to. These three men were out in a boat fishing a Baptist preacher, a Catholic priest, and a Pentecostal preacher. 
Pentecostal preacher said, guys, I'm going to have to take a little potty break. So he hops out of the boat, walks across the water to this island, goes behind a bush a few minutes later, walks on the water back to the boat and gets in. Catholic priest is just astonished. Pentecostal pastor said, you know, that's a good idea. I think I'll do the same thing. Pentecostal pastor hops out of the boat, walks across top of the water, goes behind a bush, stays gone a few minutes, turns around, comes back, walks on top of the water, climbs back in the boat. Catholic priest over there playing with his beads and crossing himself says, Lord, if they can do it, I can do it. He says, well, guys, I have to go too. Catholic priest steps out of the boat and just disappears in the water. Comes up, help me, I can't swim. They pull him in the boat. He says, I'm not going to give up. If you can do it, I can do it. He climbs back out of the boat, out of sight. He pulled him back in the boat. He said, you need to give up, Father. You're about to drown. He said, if you can do it, I can do it. He gets out of the boat, goes out of sight. While he's down, the Pentecostal preacher looks at the Baptist preacher and says, you reckon we ought to tell him where that row of stumps is? (laughs) (laughs) Things aren't always as they seem. Sometimes you have people that will try to undermine your faith. Sometimes you have people that will try to say things that will suck the life out of your walk with God and, and diminish the miraculous power of God. These two old guys have been friends all their lives. One was a very positive guy and one was always negative. To one, the glass was always half full. To the other one, it's always half empty. So one morning, the positive guy called his negative friend and said, Hey, Fred. Fred said, What? He said, I got a new duck hunting dog, a retriever. You're not going to believe this dog. He says, well, I guess we need to go duck hunting. Then we probably won't kill no ducks, but I guess I can go see your lame dog. And Mark just shook his head and said, all right, Fred, I'll see you in the morning. So they get out there in the morning, get in the boat, and Fred's complaining about everything. It's cold. It's wet. The, the wind's not right. The decoys don't look good. The spread's not right. And, and Mark and his dog are just sitting in the boat. Finally, this flock of ducks comes by, and they shoot some. Mark said, now, Fred, I know you're the most negative person I've ever seen, but you've got to see this. He looks at the dog and says, fetch. Dog hops out of the boat, walks on the water, picks up the three ducks by the neck, walks on the water back to the duck and climbs in. Mark looked at Fred and said, what do you think about that? Fred said, you got a dog that can't swim, huh? There's there's just people that are always going to see the bad. They're always prepared to see the dark lining around the sun, you know? This is a true story. I thought this was just a fable until it actually happened to me. used to know a man named Charles. He was the most contrary, antagonistic, confrontational human being I've ever met. And one day we walked outside the church, and I kid you not, I did this. I looked up and I said, Charles, this is a beautiful day. What a glorious blue sky. And he looked at me and said, well, it's actually kind of an aqua color. He turned around and walked off. If I'd have had a spear back in those days, I was a young boy. We have to understand what happened with Peter getting out of the boat. When Peter got out of the boat, he was saying, Lord, I have a measure of faith because I'm trusting in you. I see what you're doing that's impossible. You're walking on the water. If you can do that, then you can empower me to do that. And greater things than these shall you do. And Jesus said, come. Peter took that as, all right, Jesus is going to empower me to walk on the water too. Peter gets out of the boat and the water is like the ground beneath his feet, solid. 
he begins to walk. He is doing the impossible. He is personally participating in a moment of the miraculous that never occurred in anyone's life but Jesus and Peter in the entire history of the world that we know about. And then Peter makes a fatal mistake. Instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus and remembering that Jesus was the one who said, come. Peter started looking at circumstantial evidence. He started looking at the waves. He started realizing, hey, I'm doing the impossible. He started feeling the wind. And all of a sudden, he began to sink. It wasn't just that he took his eyes off Jesus. He took his thoughts off the promise of Jesus. When Jesus said, come, there was a promise inherent in that. When Jesus tells you, march that way, march that way. And no matter what, don't start looking at the circumstances and letting emotions dominate you. Remember what puts you on that path. And storms are going to come, and opposition's going to come, and a rock may be in the path, and a bear may be in the path, and a pack of wolves may be in the path. But remember who puts you on the path. Remember who owns the path. Remember whose plan it is for you to be on the path. And don't consider the hardship and the opposition and the obstacle. Consider the power of him who began the journey in you and through you. Next, God might say to us, I look at you looking online for hours. Then I hear you on Sunday ask me to help you have more faith. Hey, open the book I left you. Whoop, there it is. <laughs> now, I don't really know if God would say, whoop, there it is or not. But the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. Now, don't, don't anybody answer. And I'm not asking you this question to be inflammatory or accusatory or, or shock value or guilt trip. I'm just asking a question that all of us need to ask ourselves. This week, how much time have we spent really studying the word of God compared to really looking at a screen of some kind that might not have the Bible on it? Now, that's just a fair question for us to ask ourselves. You know, we look back at the 1950s. When some of the great early, in the early 1900s, 1906, the, the uh, Azusa Street Revival broke out. You know what? There wasn't any Facebook in 1906. I'm not even sure there was a whole bunch of television back then, a whole bunch of radio. There wasn't much of anything to do except read a book. Of course, they had a lot of babies. We had a board meeting one time. <laughs> Pastor, Pastor Lance and Shelley had just gotten pregnant with their fourth child. Old Steve McHugh looked at me and smiled and said, should we buy them a television? <laughs> Funny. In 1906... A little preacher decided he was going to start praying, and he began to pray. William Seymour was his name, and he just prayed. He, he prayed a lot. He prayed for hours on end. God spoke to him to go to Los Angeles. He went to Los Angeles, didn't know a soul there. 
He started praying there. One thing led to another. He finally assembled himself in a little mission on a street called Azusa Street, a little clapboard house. And he would stack two orange crates on top of each other for the pulpit. And he would kneel down behind them so you couldn't even see him, and he would just pray. Wouldn't even really preach so much, just pray. People got wind of this. People started coming to this. You know why people came to William Seymour's prayer meeting on Sunday? Because there wasn't football to stay home and watch. There wasn't the internet to peruse. There wasn't 14,000 movies at your fingertips to watch. I'm just being honest with us. We are so distracted by all the stuff in the world, and, and, and not all of it's going to send you to hell. Hey, you know what? I, I would almost bet you good money right now that if all of us said amen this moment and went to the Cracker Barrel, everybody in here was all go to Cracker Barrel, and, and let's get uh, a banana pudding, and let's eat it. Everybody get a banana pudding and just scarf it down. I would almost bet you good money. Nobody in here is going to go, I ate a banana pudding. <laughs> Clump, fall over and die. But if we did that three times every day from now to the foreseeable future, there'd be a whole bunch of us that at some point along the way would start going, eh, I don't feel good. It's the constant diet of it. It's not like watching a movie is going to send you to hell, but it's what do we do with the majority of our time over time? We want God to move in our lives. We want God to move in our church. We want God to move in our families. But what we got to understand is that God is going to move in and through us as we move in and through him. It's relationship. And I think we are so distracted by stuff, by entertainment, and it's not necessarily a sinful thing. It doesn't have to be sinful to be bad for us. It doesn't have to be a, a send you to hell sin to be counterintuitive to the growth of our faith and maturity. You want to go to the next level in your walk with God? Go to the next level in squelching out so much of the world because they go together. Third and final thing, an area God may look at us and talk to us about is, have y'all checked your stats lately? Y'all being not, not just LifePoint, but Christians in America. Have, have we checked our statistics lately? This is God looking at us. And yes, I'm going to tell you right now, God is looking at us saying, I'm madly in love with you, no doubt about it. God is looking at us saying, I've got a plan for you, and I want to prosper you and harm you, not to harm you and, and do great things. God is looking at us and saying, I want to open doors. I want to bless you. I want to prosper you. I want to heal you. I want to promote you. I want to do all these wonderful things. But it's like us looking at our 12-year-old son and saying, son, there's so many good things I want to see you do in the future. But before you can be king of the world or, or the ruler of your chosen domain, you have to learn how to clean your own bedroom. You got to learn how to make up the bed, pick up your dirty clothes off the floor, help mom and daddy do the dishes. You got to learn how to be responsible because if you can't clean your own room, how are you going to take care of a kingdom? And that's what God is looking at us. So when I say these things, it's not to beat us down. It is to challenge us to, to consider ourselves from a father's perspective on where we are in our walk with God individually, personally. God might look at us as the church collectively and say, 98% of you never tell anybody about me. Stop whining about your culture until this changes. 
That's what God might actually say to the church in America if he could just appear and talk to us. 98% of you never tell anybody about me. Stop whining about your culture until this changes. But we can get all upset with the things we see on Facebook and on Instagram and on Flibbergibbet, whatever app is next. Because before long, all you people will think Instagram and Snapchat are the coolest things on earth. After a while, you're going to be the old dead fuddy-duddy because the new Flibbergibbet app is out and you don't use it. Everything comes and goes. Go back and look at your haircut from 10 years ago. I got to tell you, Pastor Donna had some of the best 80s hair you've ever seen. Good windstorm would blow her down the street. Put her in my boat. Don't have to cut the motor on. Off we go. People wonder why I I carried a a bat with me everywhere I went. (laughs) It wasn't to keep the guys away. It was to keep the birds from trying to build nests in that thing. (laughs) Her hair was high and lifted up, and its train filled the temple deep and wide. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) she had, like somebody put firecrackers all over her head and lit them at the same time. But it was cool. It was awesome. I'm having fun at her expense. Hey, in college, I had an afro. I did. And it wasn't a permed afro. It was all natural. It was natural. And I was the envy of every man on campus because I could just do that big, loose, curled afro. It was this big. I'm about an afro, big, loose, curled afro. Couldn't do that now. We want to whine about things and we want to complain about things because it's easier to curse the darkness than it is to turn on the light. It's easier to find fault with what is than to find the possibility in the remedy. It's easier to criticize than it is to correct. It's easier to tear down than it is to build. You can take a doofus with a sledgehammer, you can tear up anything, but it takes a craftsman to build something. It takes much more planning, much more effort, much more coordination. It takes much more of everything to build something than it does to just denigrate it and destroy it. So if we want to change our culture, start changing it by talking to people about Jesus. How in the world did our culture get in the place it is? You want me to tell you how? I'll tell you exactly how. One person at a time having their thinking toxified by one other person at a time, be it a friend, a compatriot, a teacher, a professor, but one person at a time, the media, one person at a time listened to a message and began to be persuaded. That is exactly how we can change our culture back. One person at a time. The next thing God might say is, you want a place with more than two bathrooms? Work on that given stat. I'd love to have a better facility here. Amen? Now, look, I'm very thankful for this one. I'm not just complaining about this. I'd love to ha- I'm very thank- thankful to God for this, this facility. If you could have only seen what it looked like when we moved in. Whoo, man, this is miraculous right here. This is like a, a facelift from the greatest plastic surgeon in America. This thing looks totally different, believe me. And we're thankful to have a place to worship in. Amen? But it would be nice to have more than two bathrooms, wouldn't it? Would be nice to have a better location, maybe. 
All that happens, and I'm not fussing at anybody. I'm just challenging all of us to, to look at how our church, look at us, look at the, the American church from God's perspective. Not only this, but every church in America, you go to the pastor and say, if, if I could just snap my fingers and give you one more thing, uh, what would you want? And I know every, every pastor would spiritualize it first. Oh, I'd want my people to be more committed to God. Yes, he would. I'd want my people to be. And he'd do all that spiritual stuff. But somewhere in the top four or five, he'd look at you real serious and go, oh, and money and lots of it. Because the truth is, that's what makes everything happen. I want to ask you about your giving today. Are you paying your tithes? The Bible says if you don't, what are we doing? Say it again. Say it louder. I want you to scream it at me. If we don't pay our tithes, what are we doing? Robbing God. See, I didn't scream that. You did. All of you know. I tell you this before. I first came to work here as your pastor 22 years ago. The first day I was, first week I was at the church, Pastor Lance, me, me and Pastor Lance was all there were. were. Oh, by the way, I said, <clears throat> I said Pastor Josh was preaching next Sunday. I got that wrong. I guess my memory well, I couldn't have fooled the Chinese doctor. Anyway, <laughs> Pastor Brad is going to be preaching Sunday, but you need to come hear what he has to say too. So Pastor Lance said, uh, Pastor Roland, what would you like to put on the church sign? And I said, we have a sign. He said, yes, yeah, out front. Change letters on it every week, whatever message you want. So I took a three-by-five card, and I wrote, all non-tithers are rebels, liars, robbers, and thieves, and will burn in hell forever, and I gave it to him. He took it and said, thank you, and he walked down the hallway, and he went. And he looked over his shoulder, and he said, really? <laughs> and I said, no, nah, I'm messing with you. He went, oh, thank God. He said, we're going to have the most controversial church sign. I was messing with him. We didn't put that on the church sign. But that's what the Bible says we are. We're talking about this from God's perspective. God looks at us, and when we don't pay our tithes, I'm not talking about my belief, my opinion, the assemblies of God's position. I'm talking about big G in the sky, God. God looks at us as thieves, and we are not robbing the church. We are robbing him. Now, that's a, and then we want God to bless us. I'd be like, like stealing money out of, your, out of your mama's purse for years and coming back when I say, hey, mama, you buy me a car. <laughs> and she knows you've been stealing money. Let me just encourage all of you to under, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not trying to condemn you. I just want us, this is a message on how God sees us. And if we're going to do that, then we just need to do that right, okay? God is looking at us saying, if you want a, bigger, a, a nicer facility with, with more, then if you'll give more. If you want to support more missions, you want to see more people won to Christ, then give more. If you want to see this done, if you want to see that done, then I'm not, I'm not saying that some of you here that are already given sacrificially, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those who don't. God's looking at the ones in this church and in every other church in America. 98.5% of Christians do not tithe. How do we expect the mission of God to be accomplished in the world like that? It's never going to. How much different might our culture be today if for the last 20 years that figure had been 2%? Our, our country might look totally different if we had been paying our tithes for the last 50 years. 
I would wager it would be a completely different landscape politically, spiritually, educationally, and in every other way. And it is not, and people may think, man, my little money, my little bit of money ain't going to affect that church a whole bit, but it's going to affect me and my family a whole lot. No, it's not about that. It's about your obedience to God. Because blessing always comes on obedience. Disobedience always brings the curse. Now, the Bible said if we pay our tithes that God would rebuke the devourer. There's always a promise with these commands. He's not just saying, bring your tithes into the storehouse. He's saying, if you do it, I'll rebuke the devourer. What does that mean? My mama had one of them hideously ugly, aqua, weird, blue-green colored refrigerators for like 27 years. I think when we left the house, it was still sitting there running. Rebuke the devourer. My expedition has 260,000 miles on it. Rebuke the devourer. I'm just going to be real honest with you here. I've got underwear I have had for 10 years. (laughs) Rebuke the devourer. I do. I do. Some people said, I'm going to give you some money and buy some new drawers. <laughs> I'm good. I'm just saying, I don't throw stuff away and I don't use it up. Oh, I thought somebody had fallen in the floor laughing. That's I'm telling you the truth. Rebuke the devourer. I know of all the things I said, that's going to be the quote that's going to be remembered today. If we will, if we will give, God says he will bless us. I'll rebuke the devourer and not just rebuke the devourer. How about this part of it? I will throw open the what? Floodgates. He didn't say peephole. He didn't say cuckoo clock door. He didn't say doggy door. He didn't say cabinet door. He said floodgates. Floodgates mean when you open them up, tsunamis are coming. Floodgates of heaven. And pour out on you more blessing than you will have room enough to contain. The problem is, listen, listen, listen. The tithing comes first. I've had people say, well, if God would bless me, I would give. No, 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 that's cart horse. Giving comes first, then blessing comes after. Planting comes first, then reaping comes later. Sowing comes first, harvest comes later. Tithing comes first, floodgates come later. This is why God wants our first fruits. It is a test of our own faith in his ability and willingness to keep his word. Last thing is this, and Dave, if you'll come play. This change I'm leading you through is no surprise to me. Get on board. There's some slots and some leadership opportunities that are going to come open here in the next few weeks and months. And the changes that are happening at LifePoint Church didn't catch God by surprise. Some of you, it may have, but it didn't catch God by surprise. It's all part of his plan. 
he knows what he's doing. And we've covered this ground with you before, but I want to season it one more time. That God has a plan. This goes back to point one. God has a plan. He knows the plan he has for us. It's a plan to give us hope and a future, a plan to prosper us and not to harm us. That plan is for us personally and individually. It is also our God's plan for us collectively as a group, as a church. Churches take on complexions. Churches take on personalities. Churches take on kind of a, an attitude, kind of a, an aura. Every church is different. I've been your pastor for a long time. I'm launching out into something new and different, just as Pastor Josh and Kelly will be, just as you as a church will be. I challenge you, encourage you, lovingly command you to be faithful to this church because this church has been faithful to you. This is bigger than me and Pastor Donna. It's bigger than Pastor Josh and Kelly. It's bigger than Life Point Church. This is really all about our commitment to the greater purpose of the greater person. Let nothing divide you. One of the things God hates the most is division. Let nothing divide you. Don't complain one time about anything. Don't grumble about anything. Just trust God and trust your leadership and move forward with the vision. What if, what if Pastor Josh wants to paint stripes on the walls? Well, you know, is that really a heaven or hell situation for anybody? No. If it's not that, then don't complain about it. What if Pastor Josh wants to wear a Hawaiian skirt up here? Uh, now that, no, I'm teasing. <laughs> as long as it's modest, let him wear the skirt. Get up and dance the hula with him, you know. He may do a lot of things different than I've done it. And that's okay. Get on board with God's plan for this church. Get on board with God's plan for this church. Because he has one. And it's a good one. And it's to give us hope and a future, prosper, not to harm. God could come down. And have lunch with you today, just you. If God could come down and just say, man, we're going to go have lunch together. Let me talk to you about some stuff. What would God want to talk to this man about? What would God want to talk to you about? Or you? Or you? What would he say to us? A lot of you are looking at me like, I really don't want that to happen. (laughs) I understand. Because we can't hide anything from God. The better thing to do is not have anything to hide from God. Let our lives be an open book. Let our hearts be sold out. Sold out. Sold out. Bow your heads and close your eyes.